series presently, and we're going to continue in that series uh, this morning. I've entitled it Non-Evangelism. I'm basing it on this book by Carl Medeiros called Speaking of Jesus, The Art of Not Evangelism. Tremendous book. I encourage you to pick one up. And so I will be quoting Carl at various points this morning as well as telling you that I'm taking this series and springboarding off of his book to share with you a number of the ideas that I'm bringing to you. I've entitled this morning's message, Defining the Gospel, Where Did Jesus Go? You know, it's interesting how that Christians seem to revel in the gospel being tough. It's hard. It's hard to, it's hard to serve Jesus. You know, very, very few are going to figure it out. The road is narrow. You know, there's not many that are going to be on it. Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is to enter into salvation. Imagine that, trying to stuff a camel through the eye on a sewing needle. I mean, after all, that clearly makes salvation something out of reach for me. (laughs) I'm six foot tall and big, fat, white. Not going to get me through the eye of a needle. Did you know that that statement has nothing to do with sewing needles? (laughs) I've read that all my life until I found out that he wasn't talking about a sewing needle. And I wonder how many other portions of Scripture we read through our Western lens of interpretation and we have no idea what was really being said in the context of back then and the people, the society, the culture that Jesus was speaking to and the language that he used. How many other things? Jesus did say that the broad is, uh, the path is uh, narrow, it's not broad, and that the gospel would even be offensive. So it's kind of like there's this team effect, you know, team Judaism. We've got it figured out. We're the holy people. We're descendants directly from Abraham. We have the law. We know directly how to worship God. We can come into his presence through the priesthood. Team Judaism. If you follow our moral code, then you can know God too. And of course, back then, what it became an effort at is getting people to convert, getting people to come over to my team. Don't we do the same thing with Christianity today? It's sort of team Christianity versus the world. I mean, after all, we know the true God, we have the Holy Bible, right? So we have all the moral code, and uh, we, we know what it means to get forgiveness. I mean, God will forgive you, but you've got to do it the way that he prescribes in the Bible. And, of course, all of that's based on, you know, what, what he tells us in the Bible about repentance and forgiveness and redemption and being cleansed by the blood. Hello? Hello? <laughs> 
Team Christian. And so if you do it just the way the Bible says to do it, then we might sign you up for our club and you can come over and join our team. Get off of the team you're on. And of course, if you believe anything differently than the way our team believes it, then you're in big trouble. We spent the first two messages on those kind of ideas as we've started this series. So when you combine that with this idea that Christianity is difficult, that the gospel is hard, it's no wonder that it's a real put-off. It's, it's no wonder that very few people are attracted to, quote, Christianity. And then we have issues with the way we present Jesus. He's offensive. He's just holy and he's looking down on you and he's judging you and he's condemning you for the things that you do and you have to change your behavior to be acceptable to him. And I mean, we, we get this whole moral code going, this whole team Christian, you're not on the right team, you need to change and get on our team. And we transfer that even over to Jesus. And the question in my mind this morning is if we took a quick look at the life of Jesus and who he hung out with, would we be surprised? I'll share a couple of ideas with you on the screen here that we find right from the gospel. First of all, very early when Jesus begins his ministry, he attends a wedding feast. Now, folks, <laughs> this was not held in a church where you know, there's people in robes and it's all very calm and, and then, you know, the marriage happens and then they get done and, the, you, you know, this was, this was held out in the backyard of some Jewish home and, uh, I mean, it was party time. It, they celebrate and, and there was real wine there. You know how I know that? Because Jesus took one of the water urns when they ran out of wine during the feast, during the wedding feast, they came to him and said, Jesus, we're out of wine. And Jesus took one of the water urns and changed it into wine as a miracle. Imagine that. Because Team Christian preaches against anything to do with wine, beer, alcohol, drinking. And yet Jesus turned water into wine. I've... <laughs> I've heard things and I've read things from commentators and theologians and those apologists who are trying to make an excuse for that. Well, it, 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 it wasn't a high percent of alcohol. It was just... <laughs> well, I don't know. I've been to Israel and over there it seems they enjoy their wine. I can promise you they enjoyed it back then. They were having a feast. They were having a good time, and Jesus was there at the feast. Secondly, he was labeled and criticized for being a friend of sinners. It was said of Jesus that he eats with tax collectors and despicable people. This is Jesus. Team Christian, you, you need to think about what you're going to do with Jesus when you begin to realize that the people Jesus was drawn to really doesn't seem to fit the team Christian idea of godliness. His own disciples that he chose were just a band of ordinary, rough fishermen, 
who were largely misfits. One of them was a doctor, career, career doctor. On one occasion, and this is just the one recorded, this doesn't mean it's the only time it happened, but on one occasion, a prostitute came into a prayer meeting, made her way to the front, and poured oil on Jesus' feet, and then with her tears, washed his feet with her hair. Angelo, just before service, you were telling me how awesome this Bible study is that you've been going to. How incredible, the, just the love and, and the move of the Holy Spirit. And I wonder what would happen in that Bible study if next week a prostitute came and washed Eric's feet. Eric is the facilitator of that Bible study. I agree. (laughs) See, that went over like a big... As you're just kind of sitting here thinking, but you know, that would freak me out. That would totally freak me out if a prostitute showed up and started washing my, my small group pastor's feet. He invited himself over to the house of a notorious sinner for dinner. And then, this really takes the cake. In Luke chapter 15, in a story that even non-Christians, non-believers, non-Christ followers know of, called the story of the prodigal son, Jesus presents his father, God, as running towards the sinner, and when he gets there, bowing before the sinner. Now that takes the cake, because that is not teen Christian's idea of the God we're inviting people to serve. And yet, that's Jesus. And so my question this morning, dear ones, is this. In our defining of the gospel, where did Jesus go? We're often preoccupied, so preoccupied with trying to convert our friends and our acquaintances to Christianity that Jesus never has a chance. Carl says in his book, I quote, Has the central focus of our evangelism been trying to explain to everybody why we believe what we believe? Then if they don't believe it, we've drawn a line. Right? If evangelism is explaining to everybody what we believe and being sure we really get it out there correctly and that they understand it and then they choose not to believe it, now what do you do? You've just drawn a line. You've drawn a circle, team Christian. They're on the outside. You're on the inside. And guess what? They're not interested in your religion. And if you put all of that on Jesus, they're not interested in your Jesus. They are interested in Jesus. Everyone, I need to tell you something this morning. Newsflash. You listening? Newsflash. This ought to be on CNN, it it should go on Fox News, it should go on all the major networks. Newsflash, listen. The gospel is not a belief. It's not a position. It's not a list of things that you believe. It's a person. We don't follow the Bible. We don't worship the Bible. We love it because it directs us to the one 
who everything is about. Jesus. That's why I love my Bible. That's why I hold it precious. That's why I'm an evangelical, conservative, love my Bible, love to, love to preach the Scriptures, love to obey the Scriptures, because it points me to the one to whom it reveals, Jesus. It's all about him. Have you ever asked yourself this question? How did Paul preach Jesus without a New Testament? Has that ever occurred to you? You all stopped carrying Bibles, didn't you? So you all know that Paul didn't have this, right? In fact, the best Paul had was, generally speaking, the first five books called the Pentateuch, right, that Moses wrote. And then they, had, they always had a copy of Psalms. And then in the temple, they would have a copy of the prophets, in particular the major prophets, Jeremiah and Isaiah. And I'll, I'll show you what I mean in a minute about that. But other than that, that was only in the temple. And, and that, that was all held and, and directed by the priests. I mean, everybody didn't have a copy of the Pentateuch and take it home and study it. It wasn't on the nightstand. And so when Paul preached Jesus and got so many people saved and did miracles and so forth, the whole New Testament didn't even exist yet. So my question is, how did Paul preach Jesus when he had no New Testament? And yet we make sticking the Bible out there in front of people being sure they understand it, being sure they know what we believe and, and, and then trying to correct them if they don't believe it the way we believe it, we make that the center of our focus of evangelism. And we're so totally wrong because the center of every reach to people who don't yet follow Christ should be Jesus. Paul preached Jesus out of an experience that he had while riding on horseback with a couple of, you know, guards going to Jerusalem from another city where he could capture Christians. At the time, he was called Saul of Tarsus. And he was on his way to capture some Christians, torture them, and as he had done many times, maybe even kill them. And while traveling, he was blinded by a light and knocked off of his horse and had an encounter with Jesus. No Bible, no New Testament, hadn't even been written yet, but Paul has an encounter with the living Jesus and goes on to preach Jesus and thousands of people get saved. And the, the New Testament church is vibrant and alive and reaching. And the Bible records, Scripture records in the New Testament how that they turned their then-known world upside down with the gospel. And they had no New Testament. As we, as we define this good news, gospel simply means good news, we are commanded by Jesus to take the good news to the world. As we define what the good news is, we must stop and ask, where did Jesus go? Because we've made the good news about everything else but Jesus. Our doctrine, 
our practice, our liturgy, our programs. Y'all are quiet this morning. Only Leto's given me an occasional amen. As you look at Paul and how he preached Jesus, ask yourself these questions. Must people believe in God before we tell them about Jesus? Where do, where do you find that in the Bible? Where do you find that in the preaching of Paul even? Let alone, you certainly don't find it in the preaching of Jesus. Do we have to convince people that the Bible is true? Must we explain Paul's revelation of sin, repentance, redemption, and be sure that the seeker understands all of that before that they can have an encounter with Jesus? Is that Bible? Is that the gospel? Would it be possible for somebody to have an encounter with Jesus, believe in him, and not believe everything that the Bible says is true? Would that be possible? I love what one of the pastors at the church where my daughter attends called TNL. It stands for the next level. They meet on Tuesday nights, always have, since it began, almost two decades ago. I quote, this pastor said during one of his messages, the primary idea of spirituality in scripture isn't clean and unclean. It's light and dark. When unclean touches clean, the thing which is clean becomes unclean. But when light touches dark, the thing which is dark becomes light. And there's a great deal of difference. Dear ones, do you realize what we've done with the gospel? We've made it about clean and unclean. And when clean touches unclean, it becomes unclean. You've got to change the way you think about the gospel and the Bible and Jesus and it all, everything, even Christianity. This is not team Christianity against the world. This is Jesus who came because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would simply believe in him would be saved. Next verse, verse 17. Somebody find it real quick. I know nobody has a Bible, but you have, your, you have those iPads, pods. You're hooked to the WWW. Come on, somebody... John chapter 3, verse 17. I want it read. I want it read out loud. Where's my mic? Here we go. Who found it? See, y'all aren't even following along in your Bibles as I'm preaching anymore. We don't even do that. It's so hard to be religious in this church. Just makes me mad. Jerry? Give Jerry some microphone here. Now, start with verse 16, the one that we all know so well, and go right into verse 17. Real loud. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus is not judging the world. He came that the world might be redeemed and saved through him. Now, when we use this illustration, I appreciate what this pastor said about light and dark. 
that we need to make the gospel about light and dark and not clean and unclean. But there's something else I want to share with you about this idea of light and dark. How many of you have ever heard that when you turn on the light, it dispels the darkness? Right? We've always heard that. If you turn on the light, it dispels the darkness. Well, not really. In fact, no, not at all. Try it sometime. Go out into the middle of a field. I mean a field where there's no lights, no city lights, you know, still beaming. I mean out somewhere where it is pitch dark. You cannot see your hand in front of your face. I'm talking about darkness. Go out there. Take a flashlight. Now, turn the flashlight on and shine it up into the darkness and see what you get. You know it's not going to light things up. It's not going to dispel the darkness at all. The darkness is just going to swallow it. The truth is, light doesn't dispel darkness. Light that reflects off something else dispels darkness. So, as you go out to the field and you take your flashlight, take a pup tent. Take some kind of tent that you can set up. Set it all up. Then climb in there with the light. Have somebody stand outside. Now turn the flashlight on inside of your tent. That will light things up. Not only in the tent, but for yards around it. It will light things up and dispel the darkness. Did you know you are that tent that the light of God has come inside and is reflecting now off of you? The gospel is best spoken when it is Jesus reflecting off of us in the middle of darkness. Francois Dutrois, author of the Mirror Bible, my wife read from it a little bit earlier, says this, and I quote, This gives such clarity and content to the fact that Jesus came to the planet not to upgrade the cage of Judaism or any other religion by starting a new one called Christianity, but to be the incarnate voice of the likeness and image of God in human form. He came to reveal and redeem the image of God in us. His mission was to mirror the blueprint of our design, not as an example for us, but of us. End quote. So what was the good news that Jesus preached? Join me. Luke's Gospel. I'm actually going to turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 4. And let's look together at verse 18. Ready? Let's read it together. And uh, do we have that on the screen? What version is that? NLT? Perfect. Thanks. All right. Everybody? Ready? Read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. For he has anointed me to bring good news. Now, so he's about to define the good news. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released. Read that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. 
Now, who are we, if we're sharing the gospel, who are we supposed to say those kind of things to? So in other words, how's your day going? Oh, not so well. Man, I'm, I, I'm bummed out. I, I, I've, I've been having a difficult week. Oh, man, I'm sorry to hear that. Why? Well, I, I just release you right now. Uh, I, I just want you to know that any, anything that's keeping you from seeing clearly in these circumstances is gone from you right now. I, I just want you to know that this bad day is lifted off of you. And by the way, God just is crazy about you. He thinks you're special. Did you know I just preached the gospel? Now, who am I supposed to share that with? You know who we've been saying those kind of things to? We think that unless it's another Christian that believes like we believe, we can't say those things to them. Did you know you could say all of that to a person at work, a person on the phone, somebody helping you at the counter, someone you meet in the street? Is that or is that not the gospel that Jesus came to preach? It says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me. He's empowered me to do what? To bring good news. To who? The rich? The famous? The ones that think like I think? The ones that go to church already? No. To the poor. Those who don't yet have a walk with God that's vibrant and alive and full of Jesus. And what's the content of the gospel? Captives are going to be released, blind are going to see, oppressed are going to be free, and hey, God's crazy about you. When's the last time you told somebody outside of church that God was crazy about them? <laughs> When's the last time you told somebody that, here's a great one, because you've got a captive audience. You know those wrong phone calls that you get from time to time, somebody trying to sell something? Hey, don't hang up. Stay on. They, they're very interested in talking to you. So go ahead and listen, but then take advantage and say, man, I just wanted to know, did you know God's crazy about you? Did, did you know that whatever's going on in your life right now, I don't know if your life is, is like mine or, or you have bad weeks like I do every once in a while, but I'll tell you what, even in the midst of those circumstances, I want you to know that you're free that you're not a captive to those circumstances. And God's just crazy about you. Now, it might go silent for a long time before you hear anything. They might pass out. They might, you know, their cube mate might be picking them off, up off the floor. But I'm telling you what. If we would begin to share the gospel of Jesus instead of team Christianity, we couldn't keep people out of this place hmm we'd have to get more chairs hmm we'd have to get a bigger place just to house the people that want to come here about Jesus and celebrate Jesus I am working hard and, and God has had to strip me God's brought me into a place and I've, I've, I've told my elders I've never pastored this before. I don't know what I'm doing. I haven't been here before. I need your prayer. Because what's been going on, God has just been stripping us and laying us bare. And you know what he's doing at the heart and core of it? it, it at least so far, what I'm pretty sure of, 
he's trying to get religion out of me. He's trying to strip me of religion and get me to focus on Jesus. Now, Jesus, it says here, look at, uh, look at verse 17. Start in verse 16 of our passage here. We just read verse 18. Luke chapter 4, verse 16 says this. When Jesus came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. And then we just read what is written. I want you to notice where he ends what he reads. Verse 19, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Verse 20, he rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. And all the eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. He was quoting from Isaiah, or reading literally from Isaiah. Let's go over there. Isaiah chapter 61. Would you turn in your Bibles with me? Isaiah chapter 61. Here's what Jesus was reading. Verse 1. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. There it is. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted, to proclaim that captives will be released prisoners will be freed. Just a little bit different wording than the way it's constructed in the New Testament, but there's your three things. Verse 2, he has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Watch. And with it, the day of God's anger against his enemies. Notice anything missing from what Jesus read? He stops reading at the statement of God's favor has come upon you. Rolls the scroll back up and hands it to the attendant and never reads that the Lord's anger is coming upon you. What a selective edit by the Son of God of holy, holy Scripture. May I submit to you that Jesus supersedes your interpretations of Scripture? He did it all the time. One time he and his disciples were walking through the cornfield and they were hungry, so they grabbed some corn, stripped it, and ate it. And they got all over him about that, that it wasn't the right thing to do, that it it wasn't permitted to do that on a holy day, so on and so forth. (laughs) Is it possible that many of the things we've been raised with and taught in church could flatly be wrong when it comes to how we compare them to who Jesus really is in the gospel? Jesus did not read that because that day of judgment is over. Jesus took it, he embodied it, died on a cross with it, and bore all of our judgment for sin and destroyed it. And now... 
you quit preaching the gospel as that that people have to change their behavior before God will open his heart and accept them. Stop it today. Stop preaching that gospel. That's an old covenant concept of a punitive God before Jesus ever came. But when Jesus came and he died and he bore our sins and he rose from the dead, he changed the whole thing. And there's a new covenant now and it's all about Jesus. It's all about what he did. Boy, you missed a good place to just... Oh my goodness. Genesis, I, I, I know you're seeing me this morning get a little excited and a little animated and, you're, and I've had people say, who is that? Because when we're around him like in the car or we're around him, you know, in other settings, he just he like never talks. But then he gets in the pulpit and he becomes this other person. I know, I know, and I, I, and I don't have any defense for that. It's just the way it happens. And so I know you're seeing me get a little excited and a little animated right now from the way that I usually am. But it's because, yes, thank you, because I'm excited about the gospel. And I want to tell you something. We had a headline a little bit earlier. The gospel is not a belief. Here's your second headline for the morning. All right, you ready? Stop making it difficult for people to come to God. All right, now, Pastor, I was with you. I was tracking up until that. But, but, I mean, there's a lot of things in the Bible that, that tell us that, you know, sinners need to repent. They, they need to stop what they're doing and, and, and change their lives or else God's going to burn them in hell. All right. Well, first, I would recommend the 16 messages in my series on Romans. You start there. When you finish that, you and I will talk, okay? I'll be happy to have lunch with you and talk after you listen to the 16 messages of the series that I just finished from the book of Romans. Because until you have that, you just don't have a foundation for, for saying such things. Now, but I want to show you something that's actually in the Bible. Because I know you think I just like took a, a trail here. Let's go. Acts chapter 15. Let's actually turn. Sometimes it's good to turn in your Bible and actually see it. So we don't mind you bringing your Bible here. And even these fancy electronic things now, you can, did you know you can mark and take notes in your Bible? I mean, if you, if, I mean, if you get a good app, you can actually uh, still mark in your Bible and take some notes. All right, Acts chapter 15. Let me give you the background here of what's happening. There is a huge religious hoopla over how or what should be the law, what should be the defining boundaries over which we will allow people to come to church for worship. Have you ever been there? Have you ever... All right. What are the rules, what are the boundaries for allowing people to come into our circle? All right. <laughs> Sounds like church, doesn't it? And so there was this big stink over it. And I mean it went up to the highest, you know, presbytery of the church at that time. I mean, James was there and Peter was there, the apostles. It says they gathered all the apostles and elders and they, they were going back and forth with this. Now, James stands up towards the end of all of that talking and arguing, and here's what he says in verse 19. 
And so my judgment is we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. New International Version says, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And so he gives them two things that they're supposed to hold to. Just, you know, encourage people along these lines, but otherwise, stop all this law. Stop all these rules. Stop making it about all this religious stuff. Focus on Jesus. Carl Medeiros says, and I quote, if you don't feel like you have to evangelize someone away from their team and onto yours, you can speak of Jesus much more freely and thus much more effectively. Again, we ought to have that on a banner somewhere in the church. If you don't feel like you have to evangelize someone away from their team and onto yours, you can speak of Jesus much more freely and much more effectively. 